Hi. Hi. It's great to be with you. I trust you've had a good week. Apparently, summer's coming this week, so that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that sounds like a great idea. Um, it's survey time. So I want to do a survey with you really quickly, and this is a show of hands survey, and you need to vote, okay? And um, just, it's just three simple statements I want you to vote on. It, it, it's not being recorded. Well, it is being recorded. But anyway, I want you to vote, okay? So here, here's the deal, okay? How many of you, and I'm talk, this is what I'm calling a love-hate survey, okay? A love-hate survey. How many of you love liver? You love eating liver. Can I see your hands? We have a staggering few. How many of you hate eating liver? Okay, I can see those hands. How many of you love the Maple Leafs? You are big Maple Leafs fans. All right. How many of you hate the Maple Leafs? Can I see your hands? Okay, okay, okay. How many of you love surveys? <laughs> How many of you hate surveys? Okay, here we go. Okay, that one's done then. We are, we are going through this series called Eight Days that change the world. And we're going to Wednesday today. And Wednesday is a day in which there is extreme evidence reactions to Jesus. Some reactions are outright hatred. At the very same time, in the very same place, Jesus is very loved. Love and hatred. Love and hatred. I suspect that no one in all of history has been more hated than Jesus. I also suspect that no one in all of history has been more loved than Jesus. Hated and loved. Remember when we started the series, we went to Palm Sunday. What we're doing is we're going through that week, that Easter kind of week, right? It's a little more than a week. It's eight days. So Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Good Friday, Saturday, and then Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And we've gone through Palm Sunday. Remember, Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey colt. They're praising him. They're excited about him. Then on Monday, he deals with hypocrisy, both with a fig tree and with the people in the marketplace. Remember, he throws the tables over. On Tuesday, you remember last week we looked at this? Tuesday was a very, very busy day for Jesus. He was in conversation with a bunch of people over issues around money and Caesar and marriage and heaven and all those kinds of things. And at the end, he's sitting quietly with his disciples just outside the whole massive temple compound, telling them that one day all these stones are going to be flipped over, and one day I'm going to come back again. It was an incredible day on Tuesday. Today, Wednesday, is a pivotal day. It's a pivotal day for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that this is a time when Jesus leaves the crowds. If you recall on Tuesday, there was a statement in Mark's writings where he said no one dared ask him any more questions, those questions designed to trap him, and they couldn't because he wasn't going to be available. When Wednesday comes after being with that massive crowd on Palm Sunday and more on Monday and on Tuesday, Jesus isolates himself on Wednesday. And he begins to spend time with those, that smaller group of people who were very, very close to him, the disciples and others that he really cared about who weren't part of that necessarily that group. Wednesday is a pivotal day. Jesus withdraws. Now, what I want to do is I want to read to you from Scripture from the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, I'm not going to put these words on the screen right now. I just want to read to you what's happening in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 1, up to verse 11 is Wednesday, okay? At least all that we know about Wednesday. And what you're going to find in Mark chapter 14 is Jesus is, again, with a smaller group of people. This is a critical day, Wednesday is. And again, watch, as I've already shared with you, watch the hatred and watch the love. 
because it's demonstrated dramatically in this section. And imagine the emotion that Jesus must be experiencing. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, remember we've talked about this, how Jesus would stay in Bethany, then go to Jerusalem, then back to Bethany. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her sharply or harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her little prophecy. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Two extreme reactions to Jesus. On the one hand, hatred. We want to kill him. And Judas betrays him or gets ready to betray him. And on the other hand, we have this woman who breaks this perfume and pours it all over Jesus' body. There's hatred that reaches terrible depths here. There's hatred that comes from those who are outside of Jesus' circle, but there's hatred right in the middle of the circle, in the place, in the, in the name of Judas Iscariot. It penetrates even to that place. And yet, at the very time, there's love. So as I'm reading through this passage and I'm looking at particularly Judas and the religious leaders on the one hand and Jesus on the other, I'm asking myself, where do I fit between these two extremes? And that's kind of the question I'd love for you to also ask yourself this morning. Where do I fit? Where's my love towards Jesus? Or, or am I more, where is it, okay? I think that's an important question for us to be asking each other. And let's start with the woman. Who is she? What's this alabaster bottle that she breaks and pours the perfume on Jesus. Who is this woman? Well, I believe, and we believe that it's Mary, okay? Mary, whose brother is Lazarus, whose sister is Martha. And we believe that by looking at other passages. The account of the anointing is actually found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And people have wrestled through, is there four different anointings? Are there three? Are there two? Or is there just this particular one? I believe there are two kinds of anointings. And that what's happening here in Mar Matthew, Mark, and John is referring to this one. And Luke is speak speaking about one that happens a little bit earlier. That's debatable, and you're welcome to um, disagree with my particular position. That's okay. Um, but you'll notice uh, in verse 3, let me jump back to verse 3, and I'm going to throw it on the screen for you. 
While he, that is Jesus, was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper. There's an interesting name, right? I mean, uh, we would believe that Simon the leper had leprosy, doesn't have it anymore, right? He had it, he doesn't have it anymore, because if he did, he wouldn't be allowed to be in Bethany. He'd be out in the outskirts living in some place. He wouldn't have owned a home. His family would have rejected him. Obviously, he's someone who Jesus has healed. <laughs> I can imagine meeting him. Your name is what? My name is Simon the leper. Oh, what was the last name? Can you say that again for me? Simon the leper, let's shake hands. You know, would you feel that way? It's kind of an interesting way to refer to a person by a disease that they had, right? I'm Ken. Used to be Ken the cold. And I was Ken the headache, and now I'm Ken the diarrhea, you know, I mean, are you allowed to say diarrhea in church? I don't know. Anyway, it's too late. This is what's happening, right? I mean, you've got this identification. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, and I'll probably do it again. So anyway, he's cured by Jesus and um, Simon the leper. You'll notice that it says they're reclining at the table. You understand what happens there. The table is very low. And what would happen would be that these, their heads would be there. They had pillows. They'd kind of be propping, prop, propping up on one arm. Their feet would be back out. This, if it was square, there would be one part of the table that was open. If it was a U-shape, they'd be all strapped around there. And the women would come, and they would feed him at that particular point. Jesus is reclining at the table. You'll notice it says this. It says, a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with them. Um, interesting, right? So we've got, we know we got Mary and Martha and, and, and Lazarus here who are part of Jesus' friends. They don't seem to be in their home. They seem to be in Lazarus or Simon the leper's home. So he obviously has a pretty good sized home as well. But there's at least 17 people here in this particular context. And uh, this is just, just, just a, a great experience for them. Okay. It'd be kind of cool to be in that room, wouldn't it? You've got Simon the ex-leper and Lazarus the ex-dead. Can, can you imagine the conversation? Would, would you be sitting down and going, like, Lazarus, tell me, like, what's, I like to have leprosy. Or, or I mean, excuse me, Lazarus, what's it like to be dead, you know? Or Simon, what's it like to have leprosy? Would, you, you can imagine the conversation. I mean, I know what I'd be asking those questions, right? What do you mean you were dead? Tell me what that was like, you know? And was it like to come back to life and so on and so forth? So there's all this conversation that's, that's happening there. And, and what's going on, the way the table was oriented, there were the women and the other were, were feeding the men. They were coming and serving them, so they would drop it off, and the men's, again, their men's, men's feet, again, were, were out, and they would be feeding them at that point. It was just a great experience. You ever had anybody do that, just come along and feed you? Like, not just in a restaurant, but I mean, some people just, like, really, that's all they did was just feed you food. They didn't eat themselves. You ever had that happen? My wife and I, years ago, went to some friend's home. They're from Guyana, and they invited us over. We had five kids at the time, and they were pretty young, and nobody usually invited us over when we had five kids who were pretty young. There are some interesting stories when they did that got around, and so they wouldn't invite us anymore. Um, one of our kids, for example, on two separate occasions, they had given him a glass to drink, a glass glass, and he bit it and cracked the glass in his mouth twice. <laughs> Happened, and so the word got around, feed him plastic, don't get him near glass. You know, that's what he's like. But anyway, these friends for, from Guyana had us come to their home, and uh, we didn't realize this, but they'd already eaten. When we got there, they were done eating, and they just wanted to serve us. So there was the five kids and Carol and I, and they were just constantly bringing food. Man, sausage and beef and chicken. And the kids, every time their milk got down, they'd fill it up or they'd give them Coke. Is it okay if they have Coke? Sure. 
you know, go ahead, do it. And, and this is what was happening. They were feeding them that way. It was so cool, man. Yeah, I want more food. And they just kept bringing it and bringing it. And now you're a little jealous. I get it. I get it. Mary has this extreme example of love. Look at, let's go back to verse 3. And here's what we read. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of nar pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Mary is not in her own home. So she's in Simon the leper's home, and it's obvious that she's planned to do this. She has decided in her mind that she's going to take this perfume from her home, go to Simon the leper's home, and she's going to pour it on Jesus. The text tells us that this was very, very expensive. And historians tell us that the perfume that she has comes from either China, Tibet, or India. It's from the root of a particular plant, and it would have traveled on camel from all that distance until it got to the whole area where they lived. And then it would be processed and put into these very fancy jars. Um, it was extremely expensive, extremely expensive. And um, likely it was a family heirloom um, or it was something that was, you know, was really, really valuable. In one place, the text tells us that it was worth a year's wages. Now, we're, we're hanging around that, that time when we're filling out our income tax returns, right? So imagine that you get working on your income tax return, you look in that box, whichever number it is, that talks about your, your gross salary, not your net, after the government has taken what they want to take, but that gross salary. And I want you to imagine, that's how much money. I'm going to go out and buy a bottle of perfume with that. Like, I mean, just imagine. Okay, so this is a very rare thing. And it may have been, some argue that it could have been, you know, inheritance in the family. It could have been something that was reserved if things got really bad. It might have been like a retirement sort of deal, this jar of, 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 of oil that she has. And it was, you know, you don't, you don't waste this. And what she does is she takes this oil and it's likely she breaks the neck on the bottle and she pours it on Jesus' head. And it runs down his hair and into his beard and onto his clothing. And then John tells us um, that she, she pours it on his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. It is an extreme example of love. Jesus actually says these words. He says, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial, which makes you ask some questions about Mary. Does she know something that the other disciples haven't figured out yet? It's interesting because she does not participate in anointing Jesus' body after his crucifixion on Friday. Does she do it now instead? I've thought about this whole scenario and recognizing that this is a very expensive kind of perfume it's on Jesus' hair, it's on his coat, it's on his feet. I wonder if the next night when Judas comes to betray Jesus in the dark with a crowd, I wonder if when he reaches over to kiss Jesus, if he smells the perfume. I wonder if when the soldiers have woven that crown of thorns together and rammed it on Jesus' head if they smell it too. 
I wonder if the men who have taken Jesus' feet and overlapped them and driven an iron spike through his feet to that cross, I wonder if they look at their hands and smell the ointment that Mary had put on Jesus. It would have filled the room. It would have been this aroma of love that Mary had toward this man that meant so much to her. Very expensive. And she doesn't care what people think. She's going to do it anyway. They're complaining about her harshly. Just does it. Why? Because she loves him. And she doesn't care what anyone thinks. She loves him. Love gives everything it has and then regrets it doesn't have anything more to give. I think about this woman and ask myself, and maybe you're doing it too right now, why does she love him so much? Why love this man who sometimes we have trouble understanding what he's teaching us about? Why love this man? And I think her love is always in response to what Jesus has done and who he is. Whether that be in terms of his teachings, she's responded to that, or the miracles, she's responded to that, or maybe more than anything from a few weeks before when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And she's responding to his love. It's an echo back of his love for her. And isn't that really our response too? I mean, isn't it true that the reason we love Jesus is because he loves us first? God's always the initiator. You are loved by God, right? So much so that he sent Jesus to take care of your sin. There isn't anybody who loves you any more than God does. And that truth should echo inside of our hearts all the time. I believe my love for God is always ever a response of his love to me first. And that's happening in this passage as well. Why does Mary love him? Because of all he's done for her. How can she not love him? And I would ask that same question of us. How can you not love this man? How can you not love him? And I don't understand when people see Jesus and, and get to know him a little bit better and understand everything about him, why they don't love him. Because look what he's like. Look what he's done. And yet they don't. And clearly Judas didn't. Amazing, her love for him. She doesn't care. She's humble. I have to tell you that I don't love like Mary does. Not yet. I'm working on it. I'm asking God to help me. I want to get there, and I believe that's a journey he wants for me to experience. I want to love like her. I want to be willing to give absolutely everything. I don't want to not care what people think about me. Because there's nobody like him, right? Nobody like him. God loves me. Can you say that with me, please? God loves me. Do you believe it? God loves me. He isn't going to love me any more than what I am right now. He won't love me ever any less than who I am. He loves me just like I am right now. Wants me to change, but it doesn't change his love. Wants me to grow, but that doesn't change his love. Incredible, incredible God that we have. Don't have to work for it, earn it, do anything like that. Mary loves Jesus. I want to be like Mary. Then there's the other extreme, and it's this religious leaders. And um, you recall in verse 1, we read, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some, get this now, some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. 
but not during the festival, or the people may riot. Looking for a sly way to arrest him. They knew that they wanted to do it as legally as they could, but they wanted to sort of manipulate things so they wouldn't get themselves into trouble if, because of the way that they did it. Why? Why were they intent on killing him? And I think that the answer is that they were jealous of Jesus. And we know that in the context of that day, many of the people who had been following the religious leaders were now following Jesus, and there was jealousy there. Jealousy is a terrible thing. It's, it's built on pride and selfless, selfishness and so on. It's all about I, me, and that's what he was having happen to him. They were following Jesus' teaching. They were following the miracles. They were blown away, and they were jealous about him. John tells us this, which is really interesting. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So not only does Jesus have a target on his back, but so does Lazarus, because there's a jealousy that's there. There's also a theological issue with the Sadducees, who are part of this group. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. They taught, no, but he gets resurrected from the dead. There's an afterlife, but it's not like that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you got Lazarus, raised from the dead. Uh-oh, there's our theology. We're in trouble. Not only that, but Jesus walks around and says things like this, I am the resurrection and the life. That's kind of an interesting statement as well. So there's a theological problem. And what I, what I struggle with, and I don't know if you see this here in the text, you have a theological position that Lazarus is walking around telling you it's not right, and Jesus is teaching that it's not right, and you're going to hold to that position even to the point of killing the man who has it. Man, we're a stubborn bunch sometimes, aren't we? Like, what's going on here? Why would you not submit yourself or at least ask the question, maybe I'm wrong? No, I've got this theology and I've taught it over and over again. The degree of denial that we choose to live with is crazy. Here's the Sadducees. Don't talk about resurrection. Don't want to see resurrection. Let's kill Lazarus instead. Then we come to Judas. Judas. The differences between Judas and Mary are huge. And the strange thing is that here is this man, they watch the same things. He's listened to Jesus' teaching as Mary has, watched the miracles, watched all of that, and yet there's this dramatic difference between the two of them. Sin can really twist us and mess us up, can it? Judas was a betrayer. When John writes about this incident in chapter 12, he writes these words, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I mean, he sounds so noble. Let's care for the poor. Let's put him on the caring team. He'll be the leader of the caring team, right? Judas sounds so caring, but he's not. In his heart, what is he after himself? And he's been taking money out of the bag and keeping it for himself all the while, and that has gripped his heart and bent him dramatically away. Jesus' response is interesting. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you're always going to have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand. 
to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. And that's coming true again this morning, right? That's coming true again this morning. Mary is worshiping Jesus. And Judas that night slips out, takes the three-kilometer walk to Jerusalem, meets with the religious leaders, and says, I will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. What's Jesus worth? 30 pieces of silver? I'm going to exchange that for Jesus. I'd rather have the 30 pieces of silver. You ever ask yourself what things we do sometimes to exchange for Jesus? I want more money. I'm going to exchange that for my life with Jesus. Or I want more pleasure. And we can have a list of these things that we keep flipping back and forth, back and forth. I asked the question, how can two people who lived with the same Jesus, walked the same paths, heard the same message, saw the same miracles, listened to the same teaching, experienced the same love, be as different as Judas and Mary? That's the power of sin over us. It entangles our hearts and it twists us and we need to be really careful about it. We sometimes play with it and then it grabs hold of us in ways we would never have imagined at one point. That's what happens with Judas. Mary tells us what love is like. It's sacrificial. It's surrendered. It's a full awareness of what Jesus did for her. And I leave you with a question. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to grow deeper in your love for Jesus? Do you love him? Do you look at Mary and say, I want to be like Mary? I want to have that kind of heart. I really do. Because that's the Jesus that she loved and the same Jesus that Judas hated. You have a choice to make, right? And I believe that loving Jesus is putting ourselves in the absolute center, the sweet spot of what it means to be a human being created in God's image. And the more that we love him, the more that we sacrifice for him, the more that we're surrendered to him, the more that we don't give a rip about what people say, the more that love grows inside of us and we discover the wonder and beauty of what Mary knew in her life. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? Father, thank you for this time today. Thank you for this Wednesday event in the life of Jesus and what we can learn and understand because of it. I think of, I think of Mary and I'm so thankful for her and feel so far away from the love that she has and want to grow closer. And I pray that you'd help me to do that. I, I pray that for each and every one of us in this room. Maybe in the quietness of this moment this morning, you might reach out to Jesus um, and, and ask him to help you to love like Mary loved, to live like Mary lived, to respond to his love for us the way Mary did. Lord, I pray that you would take this uh, teaching this morning and massage it into our lives day by day, hour by hour, may we become more and more in love with you because you love us so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.